This morning, I was Brother Mark and I were just talking about some things about <clears throat> about the life of Joseph. And this morning, I, I want to kind of step away, not just for the book, just for a few moments by way of illustration to look at some very, I think, powerful things sometimes that we, are, we acknowledge, we know about, but we tend to forget about. You know, and have you ever thought about that, about this? What about your conscience? That I've thought about this. When we look at the word conscience, as far as in the New Testament, I want us to look at this, if you would. Turn to Romans chapter 2 and verses 14 through 16, if you would, just for a moment. I'd like to make a few introductory comments concerning this passage and how it relates to how people make decisions today and how their conscience, dear God, what influences their conscience to make such decisions. I'd like for you to read, just look with me, in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. It says, For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to the gospel. As I read that passage, it got me thinking about so, so much about today, and we'll look at some secular reasoning in just a moment. But you know, in, in the book of Romans as well, in Romans chapter 1, verse 19, it tells us something about the conscience, that God has revealed himself in two ways to mankind. First, through creation, and then secondly, by conscience. And when I thought about this, I said, and Mark even touched upon this in our conversation, to what extent do unbelievers have a conscience? Do people without Christ feel badly when they break the law? Now, we know that there are some people that are morally good people, you know, and, and with that, but let's look at it from the extent of how the world would interpret through their conscience when they, if they break the law. For example, there is a, a worldly sorrow that looks at it that when they break the law, they're really not concerned about who they offended it's just I got caught and that's how they interpret you know through their conscience what the law is meant to do as opposed to a New Testament believer who knows the Lord Jesus Christ personally as his Lord and Savior has a godly sorrow that guilt is compounded upon him and the Holy Spirit brings to light the scriptures in such a way that he repents of his sin and he turns toward God You know, unbelievers can deny this right here. They can deny this book, and we know that they do. And we've presented at times, all of us have, to people that we know and love. But you also have, this is one thing, they might deny the Word of God, but they cannot deny their conscience. God has put that within them to be able to have, in other words, even with a child, even as small as they are, it doesn't take very long that when they tell a lie, their conscience is pricked. They already know that a moral boundary has been crossed. 
You know, before we get into chapter 42, I'd like to list three functions of our conscience, just as a reminder as we develop the story of Joseph. You know, and I've never really thought about it as I got to study in the life of Joseph, that our conscience, this gift from God, this inner oracle, if you please, distinguishes between right and wrong. And now, when I looked at this, that word, even in this, uh, what does oracle mean? It's a divine utterance delivered to man, usually in answer to a request for guidance. Don't we do that all the time? If we have any understanding about our conscience, what is the blessed Holy Spirit coming to do? That when we violate the law of God, He comes to what? Alongside of us within our conscience to basically redirect us back to where we need to be. So I'm thankful to God that He has given me and He's given you a conscience. You know, even in the... In the uh, that the Hebrew word debar, and it means this, to convey divine communication. And I thought about that. Who better to, do, to relay or convey divine revelation than the Holy Spirit of God? Isn't it a blessing that Christ said, I will not leave you comfortless. I must go away. I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm going to send another one just like myself to abide with you forever. It's not, his presence is not going to end just simply but when we drop this flesh. We're going to be with him forever. And now as I look at this, I want to say this. I want to be very cautious even when I say this about an unbeliever's conscience. Do you all, all of y'all probably, if you've had kids and grandkids and stuff, the movie Pinocchio, okay? And he had his little friend, Jiminy Cricket, and they had this little song that said this. And always let your conscience be your guide. Well, we know from the very fact that you cannot trust your conscience. Now, why would I say that? The reason is it is not completely accurate. We, because we're in a fallen state, first of all, by the sin nature, and second, by this. How do many people, and I would classify Christians in this same group, how do they condition their conscience and that made me think about this okay because we know it ourselves i know many christians and i'm not saying it by name many christians who make decisions christians now i'm talking about who make decisions based upon a hunch or based upon their feelings well i just feel that's the right thing and that's a beautiful car even though the payments are eight hundred dollars a month you know you know that, that, that based upon what? How they look, how it appeals, how that the conscience is gravitates sometimes more so toward desires of the flesh than it is toward desiring to please God. To give us an idea of this, I'm not a psychoanalyst, okay, so I'm not going to say, but I'm acquainted a little bit with some of the techniques that they have talked about and have tried to implement. First, there was in this individual by the name of Freud. Everyone's pretty much heard of him. And he tried to break down the psyche of man in this regard. There's three things. There's the ego, the id, and the superego. Now, the id is kind of like primitive instincts. It's kind of more, what you say, animalistic. Okay, And with that, that since it's primitive, it has its main thing is the sexual drive that exists within the individual. 
And then there's also this, the superego. It operates as a moral conscience. And this is really, this is, uh, what do you say? This is a lot of fluff. There's a lot of lingo language here, okay? And then there's the ego itself. It mediates between the id and the ego. Now, Freud's answer to try to sum it up, what he was trying to say was this. If we reschool the conscience, that there's no truth, there's no sin, you're not accountable for anything. And so we know that if that has had its influence within culture and society for some time. But what about this? There's another behaviorist by the name of Skinner. And he taught this, that one has a behavior that is counterproductive and results in bad behavior. So you know what to do? Let's just change the behavior for good results, and that'll take care of itself. Now, we, one thing that I think it maybe has embedded within people's thinking in our day and age would be, I think this would be probably one of the ways that people would think, is Alcoholics Anonymous, okay? And one of their slogans within their criteria is this, it states this, that to any God higher than yourself. Now, I've got to thinking about that. Now, notice, I went to school with a man who was a little older than I was when I was in Bible college. And he went to AA. And it seems like at times when I talked to him, he gave more credence to AA for how his life turned out than what Jesus Christ had done in his heart and life. But that's what you run across in the world because guess what? Since it's, this has reconditioned him, I don't drink anymore, I'm a good person, I must be going to heaven. That's kind of a logic that people buy into. But you know what? Here's the thing. This is the, this is the truth, and that's what, I, that's what I'm after. I'm after the truth. You know, God's word, the biblical view of guilt, gives us the reality of guilt. But it's so simply put in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. And listen to this. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh. After who? After God. And so there is a fact of guilt that is put within Scripture for us to understand. Now with that, there's a culpability for that truth, that how we respond to it. That means this, that each of us are liable to God for our attitudes and actions. And the very proof of our actions many times facilitates whether or not we are chastened of God based upon how we respond to the teaching of truth in our lives. Now with that, so since we are liable, when we fail in what's expected, when we violate what he forbids, there's consequences. And those consequences are are so real. And when I thought about the Freud and the Skinner comments and stuff, isn't it very realistic about what Psalm 1 teaches us? That there, the blessed man, he doesn't what? He doesn't walk. He doesn't stand. He doesn't sit with the ungodly. But he is a blessed man who prospers. He's like a tree that's planted by waters that bring forth fruit. And be said, but, but what? But the ungodly are not so. Because what? They're not walking after that. They're not walking after the delight with what the scriptures teach that we need concerning our guilt. Now, I looked at this so much more. You know, the Bible speaks so much about the conscience. It talks about a weak conscience, a seared conscience. And that even this, even in light of a passage of, of concerning progressive sanctification, sanctification in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 32, 
it says this, and there's a correlation here between the Holy Spirit and the conscience of man. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now, if you really look at that word grieve in the Greek, lupeo, to distress, to be sad, to be in heaviness or sorrow, to cause grief, to offend. That means that's what I'm doing when I disobey God. I'm offending the very person that loved me. Jesus Christ, who gave his life for me and left the blessed Holy Spirit to teach me, he is there, and when I do those things that are not keeping with the word of God, I grieve him. I hurt him. But you know, he's always there for me. He's eternally dwelling within me. Now, so this is how guilt that's handled God's way. First of all, to acknowledge your sin. And boy, and I'm going, we're going to see this in our development of chapter 42. Do you know, think about David. I, mean, I could almost, as I've studied this passage of scripture, I've looked at his heart in Psalm 51. He says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my sin and forgive me of all mine iniquities. And he goes on to say, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Thou, thou mayest be justified when thou speakest and clear when you judge. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, listen to this. Behold, thou desirest wisdom in the inner parts. He said, purge me with hyssop that I can be clean. Wash me that I can be whiter than snow. And then notice how the guilt changes from that acknowledgement to how he begins to treat people. He said, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sin and blot out my transgressions. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And here's the key, and this is so wonderful. Then will I be able to teach transgressors thy way, and many shall be converted unto thee. That's the heart of what guilt is designed to do, is to draw us back with a fervency and a passion that we did not have. Now, <clears throat> what is the next part? Well, we admit it in a very familiar passage. Confess it. If any man says he sins, what? He makes God a liar. If we confess our sins, he's what? Faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then the third thing, you know what? Even in a process when we're stubborn and belligerent about that process, you know what happens? I'm sitting in the midst of God's people who may aid in that understanding of he's not where he needs to be and we need to come along and help. It's called church discipline. And it's, what is the purpose of church discipline? It's restoration. And that's the whole point that Joseph is trying to do within the context of chapter 42 of Genesis. So let's look at it. We'll t take the verses uh, just a, like a few at a time here and look at some things. <clears throat> so a little bit of the backdrop. Now, Joseph approximately has been absent from his brother for about 25 years. And can you imagine for 25 years they battled their conscience? 
and I, I'll try to flesh this out just a little. They, they fought to silence it, not talk about it, defer it, ignore it, do whatever they could. And, but their consciences were shouting to them, and they had not said anything to Jacob about Joseph. We know they covered it all up and then perhaps never breathed again to each other. Can you imagine going 25 years living with that type of guilt and never, ever confessing it, never, ever dealing with it, that type of guilt? We know the prophecy that tells us that these brothers, they would come to Egypt. We'll sit, read it in just a moment. For reconciliation to take place, these brothers must admit their guilt. And for them to admit their guilt, their sleeping consciences must be awakened. And so Joseph isn't being hard on his brothers. Some people think that he is. He's being harsh to his brothers, but he's really not. He's doing the most loving thing that you can do. Joseph is wise in awakening their suppressed guilty consciences. And so let's look at this, the first thing I want us to do. And I'll, I will entitle this a principle of association. A principle of association. Now, <clears throat> and let's read the verses and then we'll now unpack a little bit. Now, notice verses 1 and 2. It says, Now, when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, Why do you look one upon another? I, when I seen that question, it made me automatically think, Why are you standing around? Don't you understand there's a famine in the land? We are starving to death. You don't need to be here. Take some money and go to Egypt. How hard can that be? Now, let me ask you something. How aggressive do you think they're going to listen to their father's command? I think they're reluctantly trying to avoid having to go to Egypt if they possibly can at all. Because why? Their consciences are pricked. Can you imagine any time that someone would mention the word Egypt, they would say, oh, you know, it just affected them. But notice this. They're starving. There's a famine. And suppositionally, as I said, can you imagine over a 25-year period anyone coming or going? Can you imagine these caravans? Because they sold Joseph into a caravan, right? And here's another one coming. Well, I wonder where it's going. It's going to Egypt. Okay, guys, let's move it on down the road. Let's, <laughs> let's get these guys away from them because it reminded them of what? Of what happened to Joseph. Now think of this. Now their father says, we're starving. Go to Egypt. So all of the guilt begins to rise to the surface. And it's just me thinking in my mind how I'm interpreting this, looking at this. And the images that they possibly encountered as they got close to Egypt. Look at verse 3. And Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy corn in Egypt. And I don't want to stop. I said sometimes we can move too fast in looking at this narrative. But can you imagine maybe as they're getting close to Egypt and they're walking by and they see slaves maybe working out in the field? And they thought, maybe Joseph there working. Or they see a building being construction, of, I don't know, whether pyramid, whatever the case would be. And they're thinking, I wonder if Joseph might be there. But what we do know is this, verse 4, look. But Benjamin, Joseph's brother, Jacob sent not with his brethren, for he said, and let's take note of the next phrase here, lest peradventure mischief befall him. Now, I want us to study something about this here just for a few moments because we have the record that we've already studied about these brothers' conduct, right? And it's not hard to see. If you look in chapter 38, Judah's incest with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, you know that had to get back to Jacob. 
How about this? The brothers attack upon the Hivites when all the men were basically circumcised and then they went in. And not only did they kill all the men, they took the wives and they took the children. And what was Jacob's response? You brought a bad thing upon us. You know, we're going to be the stink of the land. They're going to be out to get us because of what you all did. But then let's even look further. How about Reuben? Reuben even slept with Jacob, his hand or his concubine, Bilhah. So now, when I look at this, let's peradventure mischief befall him, don't you think that Jacob didn't know somewhat the conduct of his own sons? Now, and what I say with that is this, these guys are partners in crime. They're all guilty. And when we look at this, there's an application for us. And I don't know any of your hearts and don't want to. This is more rhetorical to get us all to think. Maybe there's something in your past, maybe an event. Have you ever, is there anyone ever in your life that you run across that wronged you and time goes by and you think you put it to rest and their name comes up and your blood begins to boil just a little bit? Because we're human. We're not perfect in this about forgiveness, are we? We like to dig up bones, so to speak, sometimes. But notice it. When we hear it, our blood runs thick and we're guilty. And it's interesting to notice the way we can hear of certain things and feel so guilty. Let me try to illustrate this, okay? I, this would be, I try to think of a, a biblical illustration that we could identify with, okay? <clears throat> Let's say that maybe uh, you're at work and someone asks you about, about the Lord and there's a bunch of the buddies who are more worldly around and you're afraid to say anything because you're embarrassed and so you're silent. Or how about this? Maybe someone's at work and they're very caustic or maybe very vulgar and they start taking the name of the Lord your God in vain and you say nothing about it. And then I thought about this passage in John chapter 18 verses 15 through 27 and you all know the account of Peter's denial of Jesus Christ. Three times, I do not know the man. And what I'm trying to do, while we may look at ourselves, do we ever defend the character of Christ perfectly? I'll be the first to tell you I don't. I feel guilty about that. But I'm tried this very much. I want to make restitution. I want to admit that I'm guilty, that I, when I had an opportunity to glorify God and to spread his word, that I can ask him to forgive me, be restored, and then make a diligent effort to try to do so when the opportunity avails itself. <clears throat> so when I look at this, there's a second principle, a principle of circumstance. And Joseph will begin to use wisely, I think, to awaken his brother Guilty's consciences in what we will call that, the principle of circumstances. Now, again, if you come early... <laughs> You get some people, and I'm, believe me, it, it absolutely thrills my heart to know when any of you all come up and begin to converse with me that, that something resonated to you from what I taught because I want to do a good job. I want to glorify the Lord. And so I, I know when I hear those comments, I'm, I'm, it's reaching somebody, you know, and it's not me. It's not me. It's him working through me. And so when I thought about this, F.B. Meyer, and I'm going to basically paraphrase what he said about this, 
He talks of the way Joseph lays down literally, step by step, everything his brothers had done to him. And I hadn't seen this, even being familiar with the story, how you can go back time and time again and begin to look at Scripture and see new things. And so think about this, uh, verse 6, and now notice. And Joseph was the governor over the land. Now notice the next phrase, and he it was that sold to all the people of the land. Now if I take that literally, that means this. If you had to get corn, you had to go in front of Joseph. Okay, now let's read on. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the earth. Does that sound familiar? Remember the first dream that took place that he told them? Now let's kind of rehearse that just a minute. I was in the field, and you sheaves were out there, and my sheaves stood upright, and you made obeisance to me. And what does it say, their response to it? And they hated him. But now this event, this is... They don't see this yet. They don't see the fruition of even the dream that Joseph had. Now, notice this. That word governor, shalit, it means potent or potentate or could be rendered prince or warrior. A ruler or, or one that has mastery. And man, didn't he have mastery? I mean, think of the power that Joseph had only in the throne. Will I be greater than you, Joseph? That's power. Now, look at this. Remember, as I said, that passage about that dream was back in Genesis 37, verse 7. Now, look at verse 7. And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them, but made himself strange unto them, (laughs) and spake, no, and spake roughly unto them. And he said unto them, Whence come ye? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew him not. Now notice this next verse. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed of them and said unto them, (laughs) you are spies. Now, if we go back and we look at this, okay, in chapter 37 and verse 4 and going forward through that, they couldn't speak peace to Joseph. And when they saw him coming, what was some of that? They were accusing him of doing something. The, your, our father sent you out here to spy on us, right? Well, now Joseph is going to take the same opportunity by speaking roughly to them and say, notice they said, here comes the dreamer. You come to spy on us. Our father sent you. Now he's saying this, you're spies. You come to look at the unguarded places of the land. Now, there has to be a purpose. Why? I mean, I don't really think Joseph is necessarily enjoying this, and we know that within the context of this chapter, that is the case. He didn't enjoy this. But now let's look. Now Joseph interestingly accuses them of the same thing, verses 10 through 14. Notice. And they said to them, Nay, my Lord, but to buy food are thy servants come. We are all one, one man's sons. We are true men, thy servants are no more spies. And he said unto them, Nay, but to see the naked of the land are ye come. And they said, Thy servants are twelve brethren, the son of one man of the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with her father, and one is not. And Joseph said unto them, That is, that is it, that I spake unto you, saying, You are spies. He's, he's really hammering this home to them, you know. 
Now, let's look at some things, okay? I think this is one of the tests that Joseph utilizes. That is the test of honor. He's going to see if they're going to come clean about what they've done. Now, what I've described here is the principle of similar circumstances. Joseph already went through the very thing now they're going to be experiencing. Okay? Now, we're guilty of something. What do we try to do? We suppress that guilt. We ignore it until we see someone else in a very similar situation. Now, can you think of anybody in Scripture that had a situation who was angered by the very fact of wrong that was done to someone? And I automatically I thought of David. You remember the, the account, what happened? Nathan the prophet came before David. And he said, there was this poor man, had this one ewe lamb. And here you are, you're rich. And you went and you took that poor man's lamb. And you took it for yourself. Now, what did Nathan the prophet, what was he doing by that? He was bringing David to the acknowledgement of the guilt that he should, was up under. But the great thing about David is if David recognized this, there was still a consciousness about God within him. Because what did he say? Whatever this man has done, it's going to be restored unto him fourfold. I mean, David's laying it out. And then we know the verdict. Nathan said, thou art the man. I can't see anything different than what Joseph is trying to do by pulling these individuals to allow this guilt to surface so they can deal with it. Until someone, notice this, how about this? Here's something that everyone's guilty of. I'm, I'm positive of this because I think I understand people a little bit. Gossip. Not a one of us has not been, you know, you know, you've heard it. Some people try to think they're unintentional. Now look, this brother, you know what, he come over now. He stepped all over my toes, but listen, I'm not trying to gossip. I'm just trying to do that so you can protect yourself. You see what I'm saying? There's some people that think they're self-righteous that are not even gossiping when they're actually gossiping. But notice this. Until someone gossips to us or we're gossip about, it is that similar circumstance that brings our mind by the grace of God to say, I'm guilty of that. I'll be guilty of that, or am guilty of that, and will be guilty of that. This story probably has as many specifics. I, I, I know there's probably some in, in the Word of God, but this has as many specifics and details of a particular story in the Scriptures as much as I've ever read about. And the reason for that, it's not to be read this story about Joseph is just not something we want to teach in Sunday school. This is to be read for us to apply. There's lessons to be learned from the life of Joseph right here this morning for us. In other words, this is a test. And now notice here, let's look on and read just a little bit. And let's read 15 and 16 again. Hereby you shall be proved by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from forth hence except your youngest brother come hither. Boy, you can really tell. We know Dad's not going to let Benjamin come. We know that. But Joseph, he knows what to trigger here. And notice, send one of you and let him fetch your brother, and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be proved, whether they be any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. Now let's put this, let's look a little further. And now he put them all together in ward three days. Now, we know Joseph's already been in prison, right? Now, 
you think about this. Joseph is standing in front of his brothers. And he, he goes, to, you know, and this is an interpreter, you know, it's interpreting this language. And I told Mark, I said, can you imagine? You got this interpreter and here's Joseph and how polished he is. The message is going back and this interpreter's telling them this is what he said. And so they're talking. Can you imagine the conversation? Oh, you know, we did this to poor Joseph. And the whole time he understands every word that you're saying. So he, he's pretty much not. But even more so this, what does he do? He puts them in prison for three days. Now think about this. When you're in solitary confinement, there's only one thing you're going to have time to do. Think. You can't distract it. You can't go for a hike. You can't run somewhere. And they're going to be talking among themselves. And so, as we look at this, let's read on here just a little bit. And Joseph said unto them the third day, This do and live, for I fear God. If you be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison. Go ye, carry corn for the famine of your houses. and But bring your youngest brethren to me, so shall your words be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Now, when we read that, you know, again, going through all this, Joseph understanding everything here, I want you to know that this is where the point, this is a, to me the centerpiece of this whole chapter. Notice verse 21. And they said one to another, we are verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear Therefore is this stress, the stress come upon us. You're talking about, this is where he, he got these boys to, these men to, to that point. You know, the prison had done its job. And you know what I've, I've studied in one of the commentaries, one of the men I looked at, he said, note the word we in your text. He said, it, it's emphatic in the original. In using this word, it's as if they smite their breast and say, we, only we are guilty. That's powerful. And that's where we try to get people with the gospel, isn't it? Where they're in a condition they don't see. That, and I think it's John MacArthur had something on Facebook or something here this past week, and I've seen it, that the starting point of the gospel is pointing them to the wrath of God that abides upon them. And that is so true. And can you imagine the guilt here? The thing in all of their minds that brought tremendous guilt was God is doing this because of what we did to our brother Joseph. You know, and when I read that verse again, can you imagine my mind goes back when we started teaching a little bit on this series. When Joseph was thrown into the pit, I can only imagine. Simon, Simeon, please, my brother, Pull me out of here. Why, why, why are you all doing this? Reuben, help me. Please, bring me out. Can you imagine the distress of that young man, Joseph's soul? And now this is coming back to bear upon them. And so when I think about this, I want, you, want us to see one other thing here too in the time we have. We're about done for that, I think. Just notice here, you always have somebody in the crowd that's a little bit self-righteous, aren't they? 
And I want you to look at verse 20, 22 with me. And Reuben answered them saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child, and you would not hear. Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter. Now, I'll just say this. Reuben was just as guilty as the rest of them because, you know what? He was right there with them for 25 years. Okay, so you did tell them initially, but why didn't you go to Jacob and tell him? Why didn't you try to go rescue Joseph from, from Egypt? Why? You're, you're no better than the rest of them. Reuben never attempted to rescue Joseph and now is self-righteous. And here's the last thing and we'll close. Verse 23 and 24. And they knew not that Joseph understood them for he spake unto them by an interpreter. Man, isn't this a man? This is a godly man. And he turned himself about from them and wept and returned to them again and communed with them and took from them Simeon and bound him before their eyes. Even though he was moved himself by their grief, he still was carrying on what needed to be done. That these men might do something that we all long for do when we're away from God, and that's be restored. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. I agree with both of you on that because that was my thought too. Because when Joseph had them come to this point right here, as we're at our passage here, I think Joseph was planning a family reunion. <laughs> okay. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank for the time you've given us in your word. Lord, how rich it is, and Lord, how grateful we are that you continually teach us. You humble us, and then by your grace, you pour your grace and mercy out on our lives. Lord, help us to be faithful and obedient to your word, and direct us this day. Help Mark as he gets ready to come and lead us in singing. Dear God, direct our pastor as he comes to preach to us this morning, that he would speak with clarity and boldness. Dear God, that we would take the, the teachings of your word this day and utilize them in our life for your honor and glory. For it's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.